0: This brings us to the next section, chapter 12, verses 1 through 59, vigilance in the face of eschological judgment. Remember, eschological means end times, the things that are coming at the end. In this section, Jesus warns of the coming judgment for those who do not follow him or heed his teachings on what it means to be true citizens of the coming kingdom. So they have attacked him and attacked him, and he's turned to rebuke them. And now he's going to warn them that if they don't listen to his words and turn themselves to him and receive his light and allow that light to transform them and fill them and shine out, and they continue to go in the ways that he's condemned them, then there's a coming judgment that is coming. Turn to 12, verse 1. Meanwhile, when many thousands of the crowds had gathered so that they were trampling on one another... There's an absolute desperation to get to Jesus for healing. Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Yeast permeates the bread completely, contaminates everything, and puffs it up. And one sense yeast is good because it allows bread to become thicker and denser and and more breakable and, and distributed through more people, but because of the nature that yeast permeates everything and then puffs it up, it became associated with sin and corruption. So he says, be wary wary of the the corruption, the sin, and the, the disease that just once it touches something, it permeates and moves through like a virus, unstoppable of the Pharisees. This is hypocrisy. They talk about how godly they are, and meanwhile they're a disease. Nothing is hidden that will not be revealed, and nothing is secret that will not be made known. So then, wherever, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. Now, what Jesus is not saying is the very famous youth pastor sermon that I and many people in my generation throughout all of America heard. That on that judgment day, when you're dead in, he- in heaven and you're standing before God, even if you're saved, God is going to put all your sins on a jumbo screen for everybody to see. Yay! <laughs> Win them to Christ through shame. That is not what God is going to do. What it's saying is that do not think that you can harbor evil in your heart and hide it, and God will not expose it one day. Do not think that you can do this thing to people and not be caught one day. You will reap what you sow. And and God will not allow this to go unpunished. And he's speaking specifically to those who are not in Christ. Even those who are in Christ, if you're wrongfully hurting people and you're justifying it and you're not repenting or you're not changing some of your life, it's going to be brought out and you're going to be held accountable for it. God is a just God, even with his own people. And that's what he's saying. It's not some future Judgment Day jumbo screen. It's the idea that you're going to be held accountable for what you did, and eventually people are going to find out what you did. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after they have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after the killing, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, I'm not going to get into this topic, but for Jesus, hell is real. Okay, no matter what Rob Bell or other people say, hell is real. And he sees it as a very real place and shows up multiple times. And what he's saying is, do not fear the people who can destroy your life. Fear the one who deals with your spirit and your life and the afterlife. Now, once again, this is an idea that you should be afraid of God, but there is a sense that you should have an awe and respect for who he is and what he will do if you flippantly ignore this stuff and not take it seriously. And I know it's really famous to say that Jesus is loving and good and that he's not really the scary thing. And in some way that's true, but in other the same ways he is scary. The whole Chronicles of Narnia, like Aslan's a lion, oh my gosh, is he safe? And the beaver's like, heck no, he's not safe, but he's good. And a certain extent, I want a father that's scary. I want a, a father who, who is scary to those who do evil mm-hmm. and will pounce on people to, so to speak, and, and get justice and deal with things. Mm-hmm. I want a God who will deal with a Vladimir Putin and what he's done to innocent people. We want this kind of a God are five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. In fact, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. And do not be afraid. You are more valuable than any many sparrows. Then he flips on the other side. But I do care about you. I do love you. I want the best for you. I will take care of you. Look at these sparrows. They're practically worthless to you. And you sell them dirt cheap. Yet God takes care of them. How much more will I take care of you? I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before God's angels. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before God's angels. So those who are willing to say, yes, I belong to Jesus, Jesus will say, like to Peter, sorry, to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, well done, good and faithful servant. But those who are saying, no, 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 I'm not part of Jesus. I'm not, no, I don't because they're, they value being accepted by the culture more than God's approval, then God will not acknowledge them. They will not be received. Because you revealed who your God really is. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the person who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. But well, the point of this making is, you can spend your entire life rejecting Christ. And you will not be condemned. You, you, can, you can wrong him and the things that you've said. You can reject him, this kind of stuff. You can mistreat him. Saturday, the people of Saturday Night Life, who have continuously mocked Christ and made fun of him and just belittled him and skit after skit after skit. If they accept Christ, they can be forgiven. God will receive them. He will overlook that. But those who blasphemy the Holy Spirit basically refuse to ever allow the Spirit to enter into their lives and change them upon death. Those cannot be forgiven. And the point that Jesus is making here is that when he goes to the cross, his death on the cross is going to forgive every sin that has ever been committed of every human. There's not one sin that is not paid for. Christ's death is so efficient and so sufficient that it takes care of every sin, whether people accept it or not. From the most vile, horrific sinner that has never repented, all the way to the sinner who is vile, who has. All sins have been repented no matter what, or forgiven no matter what. Not one person will go to hell for their personal sins. The only thing that's going to send you to hell is what you do with Jesus, whether you accept him or not. That is how powerful his blood is that it can forgive your sins even if you don't repent and become a Christian and so you can mock Jesus you can make fun of him you can reject him over and over and over again but the day that you die if you said screw you to the Holy Spirit I don't want you and there's nothing in you you can mess up and you can blaspheme the name of Christ as a Christian you can give a false witness to who he is you can live a life that doesn't honor Jesus in any kind of a way you can do this now, I would say you wouldn't do it compl- you would have to have some fruit in your life, but you know what I mean. Like you mess up and there's an area of your life that you didn't really glorify God in and didn't give bare testimony to him. And that's that's insulting Christ. You can do all that stuff, but ultimately when it comes in the end, when you die, all that really matters is the Holy Spirit actively living inside of you. And if that's not there because you refuse to receive it, that's what condemns you. That's what condemns you. That's powerful. That's powerful in how amazing Christ's blood is. And it's also scary to realize there is a point of no return for many people. But when you, they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers of the authorities, do not worry about how you should make your defense or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that moment what you must say. Now, all this is in the greater context of, if you follow me, eventually these hypocrites over here, these yeast, these whitewashed tombs are going to turn against you, and they're going to start attacking you and destroying you too. The world will hate you because they first hated me. Woe to you who are doing this to my children, because you can reject me all that you want in my life, But when that Holy Spirit comes and you refuse to receive it, your judgment is going to be far greater than anything that you can do to my children. But you, my children, do not be afraid and do not fear, because I will be with you, just as the Father was with me on the cross. And I will give you the words to say, to speak the light into their lives as they're hurting you. And like that friend that I told you about that came to Christ, uh, the way that the people died that he was killing that can be here too and so he speaks to both the persecutor and the persecuted and says ultimately in the end i'm in control and i will take care of both of you the way that you should be taken care of then someone from the crowd verse 13 said to him teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me (laughs) jesus you're on my side right Make sure that we get equally inheritance. Because money is what it's all about. I came here to make sure I got my money. I listened to all your teachings, and this is what I'm walking away with. But Jesus said to him, man, you have made me a judge. Um, who made me a judge and arbitrator between you? Now, what he's not saying is, I'm not your judge, because he just got done saying that. What he's saying is, I'm not your judge over pettiness. And I'm not your judge that you can pay me to turn the verdict the way that you want me to turn it. Then he said to them, watch out and guard yourself from all the types of greed, because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He then told them this parable, your life is not about what you've amassed, the material gain that you have. The land of a certain rich man produced an abundant crop. So he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, You have plenty of goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, celebrate. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded back from you. But you will get what you prepared for yourself. So it is with the one who stores up riches for himself but is not rich towards God. So this is a man who decided to invest. The, the problem was not that he had a 401k. The problem is not that he had a checking account or a savings account or a mutual fund. God is not saying, woe to you, you fool, for saving money. Because he's literally later in his ministry going to say, we need to be more like the world and learn how to invest our money and our resources and that kind of stuff and use it. And he commended people in the First Testament for investments and savings. What he's saying is, woe to you who took everything that you had and invested and saved it up for you to use as your security blanket when your need came. And meanwhile, there's all these people right now who are in need and you need to invest in them. Greater is the one who invests in people's lives with their money than in their own future security mm-hmm. now that's the question that I cannot answer that only the Holy Spirit can is how much do you invest in a wise kind of a way, and how much do you merely invest in the ministries and the people's lives around you? I mean we all know that it's hard. I mean, we know it's unwi- the par- The Proverbs have made it very clear that it's unwise to just spend your paycheck every moment that you get it and to not invest and save up. And there are great ministries that are blessed because of the trust funds that people have created. There are many people who have been blessed because people have saved up savings accounts that allow them to do things continuously throughout time. I can't answer that question for you and your money and your life and your ministry of what percentage goes into savings for your future and what percentage goes into people's lives but that's a not my will be done but your will be done I honor you give us this day our daily bread this is the template that you need to ask what does this look like in my own life and the, but the important thing is are you asking that question that's the real point the point is not to feel guilty because you're living in something more than a cardboard box to not feel guilty because you have more than $100 in a savings account or a mutual fund. The point is to ask, what does it look like for me and what I have to invest in the people and the kingdom of God and to honestly sit in a meditative, open way and to truly hear Christ's answer and say, holy crap, God, that's going to hurt. I don't know if I can do that. But not my will be done, but your will be done. And it may take me several months to get to the point where I can really truly release that. But I'm going to pray that you give me the ability to do that every single day until that happens. That's, That's the important part. Remember, none of this is like you should. This is just, are you seeking him? Are you surrendering to him? Are you allowing him to answer these questions? Or have you answered them yourself? and then justified it by, but I gave money over here. That's the question. And that's why that's an answer that neither I nor anyone else can re- answer. We can help you find that answer as we pray together in community over a very specific question you bring up, but I can't sit here as an authority and answer that question. And this is where it's so easy to read this and see it like a Pharisee, to get very legalistic. I have read books by modern-day Christians who have condemned you for having any kind of savings accounts, for having a house that's a little bigger than what you need, or or having this car, that kind of stuff. Because they're, ju- they're just Pharisees. They've put these burdens on you. They've ignored other passages in the Bible that talk about saving and investing and using your money to win and influence friends. If you get rid of all your money, you don't have money to win and influence friends anymore. What they're missing is the organic spirit-ledness of this, all this stuff. What God is trying to, what Jesus is trying to do is slap the Pharisees and the humans a little bit to wake them up to their absolute lack of even thinking about this kind of stuff. But then driving them into a spirit-led question-answering. Does that make sense? The goal is not to be slapped in the face and wake up and then feel really guilty and then just go the other extreme. Because that's a burden. That's behaviorism. That works with obligation, not works because you truly love. The real thing is to get slapped in the face and wake up and realize, wow, you have been like a Pharisee like that in, in that area of your life. And then fall on your knees before the Holy Spirit and say, what does that, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with this? I'm going to seek you rather than my rules and my behaviorism. And that's what trice is picking. But this is what happens when we cherry pick through the Bible. And we don't see the themes that are being developed here. And the contrast to the person who just stores up and saves for their own self. Verse 22, then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, and what you will wear. For there is more to life than food, and more to the body than clothing. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap and they have no storm or barns, and yet feeds them, God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And to which of you worrying can add an hour to his life? Now, once again, Jesus is not going and saying like, oh, look at the birds, they have nothing, and God takes care of them. What Jesus is saying is, look, God takes care of them. Meaning, look, pray to God, and seek him, and ask him what your daily bread is in your life, and he'll take care of it. And we're always going to feel like it's not enough because we're humans. But pray that God will give you the ability to do this. And which of you can add worrying? It will add to your life by worrying. Stop worrying about everything. I never really considered myself a warrior, like as I'm worrying. So if you cannot do such a very little thing as this, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the flowers grow. They do not work or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory was clothed like one of these. And if this is how God clothes the wild grasses, which is here, today and tomorrow is tossed into the fire and the heat and the oven, how much more will it clothe you, your people of little faith? So do not be overly concerned about what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not worry about such things. For all the nations of the world pursue these things, and your Father knows that you need them, and instead pursue his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well so once again this goes back to I know we all like oh I know I can't worry I know I got to stop doing this and we're like I'll try harder next time but remember this is all in the context of wake up and realizing that your worrying has not made your life better it has not protected you from calamity or disaster it has not added anything to your life and then go to God pray to Him every day and surrender your worry to Him. This is not, I'll try better, or, oh, now I know it, and I'll stop now. This is, now I know, and now I have to go to Him, and I have to surrender my worry. The key to the Christian life is taking every thought, every worry, every fear, every addiction, every lust, every desire, every, 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 and taking each one and offering up to God each day that it comes in your mind and saying, I'm giving this to you. And yes, that's tedious. And yes, you're like, there's a really long list. I'll never get done praying. Yeah. That's why it says meditate on him day and night. I mean, yes, there's a time where you need to have that isolated alone time with God. But there's also the time where you're just going through your life. And you see that house and you're like, oh, if only I had a bigger house like that. life it would be better. And you're like, no, I give that to you, God, right now in this moment. And then you you hear it again. You think, I give that to you. Like, that's what he's talking about. He's not saying you have to sit down on the floor and just pray the entire time. He's saying, do you meditate on the word of God day and night? Do you think about God continuously? Every single time things are coming in your head, are you taking them captive by surrender to the spirit? Like, oh, I'm feeling really angry towards them. I don't want that. I give my anger to you, God. Oh, I really want to do this over here. I don't want to do that. I give that to you. This is what he's talking about. This is what your prayer life looks like. It is the be still and know that I am God moments, but it's also the, 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 the every day the, 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 through the minutes. I have to confess, I'm way better throughout the day just constantly like talking to God and giving it to him. It's that be still and know God. That's the one I struggle with. Because like I mentioned before, I then... My thoughts start spinning in a whirlwind and I begin to psychoanalyze everything that's coming through my head. And the next thing I realize after a few minutes, like, ooh, God wasn't in any of that. This is my prayer life and he wasn't there. It's a lot easier to see it come in and just surrender it than to sit in silence and keep your brain in God. For some of you, you're really good to be still. But you're not surrendering and giving things to God constantly throughout the day, every time a feeling or emotion or desire, whatever it comes in. Some of you are really good at that, but you're not good at the being still and actually hearing God's voice and even knowing, like, and, and concentrating and not just giving it a brief moment like I do, but I need to take the time and actually, like, really think about that and really dwell on it, really give it to God in a much more conscious kind of a way rather than a spur-of-the-moment way. We need both. We need both. And this is what he's pointing us towards. Verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. of kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide for yourselves. Pursue purses that do not wear out. A treasure in heaven that never incre- decreases, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You do one know what your God is in your life. It's what the, you're the most afraid of, and it's what you invest your most resources into. So D.A. Carson says, it's what you spend your most resources on, time, money, energy. And then Tim Keller says, it's what you wake up in the middle of the night having nightmares over, so to speak. The things that you're the most afraid of losing. So you put them together, and I think that's a pretty good definition of trying to figure out who your God is, what you're obsessing over. And that's all Jesus is saying. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. Your treasure is the thing that you're afraid of losing and the thing that you invest your resources into and your time. And all this is to say, do you really believe that God is good and will take care of you? And are you actively, consciously, and intentionally getting to know God and having him convince you that he is good and he'll take care of you? Mm -hmm. That's the key. You can say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But the key is to take this and then go to God and then pray over it and say, I want to truly believe that you're good and you will take care of me. Take this passage and pray over it. Continuously. I'm not going to say every single day, but just continuously. Come back to this continuously. Verse 35. Get dressed for service and keep your lamps burning. Be like waiting for the master. Be like people waiting for the master to come back from the wedding celebration so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Blessed are those slaves whom their master finds alert when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, have them take their place at the table, and will come and wait on them, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night and finds them alert. Blessed are those slaves, but understand this. So basically what he's saying is, blessed are those who wait for his coming. You can take this literal or metaphorical. Blessed are those who wait for the second coming of Christ and when he comes back want to be presenting themselves as a good and faithful servant to him. But blessed are those who are willing to wait for him to show up right now in this moment in your life, metaphorically. To speak to you right now in this life. Because remember, God is with you right now as the dwelling place of God. But understand this. That the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left this house broken get his house broken to. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come an hour when you do not expect him. Now he's not saying, I'm like a thief that comes in and breaks into your life and takes things. He's saying, like a owner who knew if he knew when the thief comes would be definitely prepared, but you don't know when I'm coming. so you need to always be prepared. Then Peter said, "Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone?" <laughs> like Peter, Peter, you're my disciples. Of course I'm telling them for you. The Lord replied, "Who then is this faithful? Who is who then is the faithful and the wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his household servants to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom the master finds at work, and when he returns, I will tell you the truth, the master will put him in charge of all his possessions." But if that slave should say to himself, My master is delayed in returning, and he begins to beat the other slaves, and both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, then the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not forsake, and will cut him into two, and assign him a place with the unfaithful, that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready, or do what his master asks, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know his master will, did, and did nothing worthy of punishment will receive a light beating. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been, given, has been entrusted with much, even more will be asked. So what Jesus is saying, yes, I am talking about you. So let's get in the master-slave language. I'm your master, you're my servant. And you need to serve me, ready for me to come back at any moment. And do not live life like, oh, it's been a long time since he's come back. He's never going to come back, so I'm going to start investing in my own kingdom. And that's what he's talking about. And yes, most Christians don't get drunk, and they don't start beating the slaves. But what they do do is they start building their own kingdom. They, they start getting old and tired and worn out. And ministry takes a toll on them. And then they keep thinking, like, God hasn't come back. And then they think, I have spent so much work and effort investing in other people's lives, and now I'm old and tired. Now it's my turn to get a little bit of something. I mean, he's not coming back, and I served him so much. Now it's my turn. And then they start building their own kingdom and their own retirement and their their own hobbies and ministry starts falling aside. And then it starts hurting people as they start getting more and more selfish and thinking about themselves and... Finishing strong is hard. And I know I can't say anything because I haven't gotten anywhere to the age where I'm like having to finish strong. But I've seen a lot of people who don't finish strong. Or they try to finish strong, but ministry beat them down so hard because people suck. And they're mean to you when you're trying to lead them and take care of them. And then they get to the end of their life and they're just so tired and so beaten down that they just start letting things fall apart. And there's other people who don't. They they finish the race well. But that's what Christ is warning. He's warning, like, serving really well and doing really good things, and then you get to your life, and you're like, wait a minute. I haven't done much for me. It's my turn. Or I'm so tired and so worn out, I'm just going to be a grumpy, bitter old person who grieves the good old days. Mm. Or is angry because I worked this hard in everybody's lives, and All they did was nothing changed with them. And that's what Jesus is warning. Verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I wouldn't take that as, like, Jesus, like, I have come to bring judgment and fire and to burn everything down. Oh, I wish I was doing it right now. I would take it more as, like, I have come to remove and eliminate evil. And to judge the people of hurt and wronged people, and I really wish that would happen now, because if it happened now, then my people and innocence would stop being hurt and wronged, and justice could happen now. I long for justice. I have a bapti- baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is finished. Do you think I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, there will be five and one household divided, three against two, and two against three. There will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. My gospel message is going to make people turn on each other. There are going to be people who are going to embrace me and accept me, and there's other people who are going to refuse it, And it's going to divine families. I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring redemption. And unfortunately, not everybody receives redemption. And they bring violence as a result. The cross is not going to bring peace to the world and on earth. Don't get it wrong. Because at the very beginning, the angels came to the shepherd and said, Peace on earth to those whom God is pleased with. Meaning those who accept Christ and follow him, he will give them a peace and a joy that passes all understanding eternally in a heart kind of a sense. That he is saying. But right now Jesus is saying, I have not come to bring peace on earth to everyone. My death was going to bring redemption of a few. And those few are going to know my peace internally and my hope. And that's going to bring... But then other people in the world, their own family members, are going to see that. And they're going to see it as a betrayal. You're abandoning our cultural... Our, 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 our family, our traditions. You're rejecting what we believe in. Or, I'm jealous of what you have and the peace that you have, and I'm going to attack you. Or, I just think this whole Christian thing is dumb and evil, and you've joined it. Or, it's a cult, and you've joined it. And it's going to bring division among family. There's not going to be peace on earth with the death and resurrection of Christ. There's going to be peace in the hearts of the followers. So don't think that he's coming now to defeat the Roman Empire and bring the kingdom of earth. That's the second coming. The second coming, he will bring priests on earth and build that kingdom. And so he's making it very clear to the Jews, you've missed the one side of the coin, and you've only looked at the other side. But I haven't come for the other side yet. I've come for the first side that you've missed. Verse 54, Jesus also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a rainstorm is coming, and it does. And when you see the south wind blowing, and you say, there will be scorching heat, and there is, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but how can you not know how to interpret the present time? We are so good at predicting the weather, or kind of, temperature at least. Maybe not rain and snow. You're so good at predicting the temperature. You're so good at predicting the stock market, some of you people. You're so good at predicting the, like, the, 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 the market of a certain product or something. I mean, right? There are so many people who are gifted in so many areas of life where they can predict the ebb and flow of the market or technology or, or uh, the, the, the supply and demand chain or all this kind of stuff. Eh? Yet, when it comes to like knowing people and reading the signs of their emotions, there's some brilliant men and women who go to work and they wow people with their prediction scenarios. And they're so in tune with it. And they can map it out. And then they come home and they can't even tell you what their spouse is feeling and what's really going on in them. They know how to ask all these questions to get to the heart of a problem in a company but they don't know how to ask questions of somebody they know and figure out what's going on with them. They have all this wisdom on how to run a company the right way, but they don't have any wisdom on how to make the people in the company a family and how to see the Spirit of God working in people's lives. And that's what Jesus is saying. You have invested so much skill and energy and talent in predicting so many things of the world, but you have no idea how to read the signs of the God and the Spirit. The question I get asked all the time at school is, how do you know when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you or when it's just your own thoughts or something else? And that is one of the hardest skills to nurture. And I have not mastered that. I don't think anybody has mastered it. But we're so poor at that. Or seeing the signs of the culture and where it's taking us in a spiritual sense rather than an economic sense. And that's what he's saying. Verse 57, And why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your accuser before your magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, so that he will not drag you before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, and you will never get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. This context is basically saying you have to be in tune with God. You have to be in tune with what Jesus is doing and how he's ebbing and flowing in your life, how he's ebbing and flowing in the culture and how he's going to ebb and flow in his second coming. And it is much greater to be tapped into that than anything else. And what God is, what Jesus is saying here is the world is telling you to become knowledgeable in all these things and to be constantly alert so that you can have power over your life and power over your future. But what he's saying is, I want you to know God. And I want you to know how he thinks, and how he works, and how he's guiding you. It doesn't matter whether you're an expert in this thing. It doesn't matter whether you're an expert in the future and predicting. It only matters if you're an expert in knowing God. And that you're relation, and you're connected to him. And you, you, can, you, can, you can sense when he's moving this way and this way. You can hear him when he says, no, do this that you're surrendering your anger or your desire or your dreams or goals to him and saying, not my will, but your will be done. And he guides you and you hear him and you listen, that you can sit and listen to him and that you can surrender to him. And that is the one who is blessed. Blessed is the one who can read the signs of the Holy Spirit, who can be led by him, who can be in sync with him and surrender to him and then know where he's guiding you to invest in this person's life versus that person, versus this thing, versus that ministry? Do you say yes and no to things because you feel guilty and obligated to do it? How will people think of you? Will it ever get done if you don't volunteer for it? Or do you feel like you have to to win God's approval? Or do you say yes and no to things because the Holy Spirit told you to say yes and no to those things? This is what he's calling us to. To not have power over the things of our life through knowledge and resources, but to surrender the spirit and follow its power and its lead and its guidance. Now, go and do it. (laughs) Remember, it's taking this and praying it every day in a conscious, intentional way. And over time, you'll look back at the last year and you'll say, I have grown. I'm not where I want to be or where I ought to be. But I'm not what I used to be. That's the the goal. That's the desire.